Hi, y'all. Welcome back to another podcast episode. My voice might sound a little different today. So we are recording this on November 13th. So right before this was the Michigan-Penn State game. If you guys don't know, I absolutely love Michigan. Go Blue. I graduated with my undergrad there and was a college athlete there. But I was at the game screaming. And so my voice is not 100%. But I'm so excited to be able to bring this podcast episode to you today. What we're going to talk about with my special guest, Chelsea Verrett, is about the state of autism research. I, I reference this a lot on the podcast, talking about largely how the autism field and the autism research field hasn't caught up with the neurodiversity focus and neurodivergence. But I was really excited to be able to connect with Chelsea on LinkedIn. And immediately in her headline, it says autistic autism researcher. And I was like, okay, we got to have her on the podcast. And we really haven't chatted much back and forth other than right before I hit record, I asked her a couple of questions. She was in education prior to going back to grad school. So we're going to dive into that a little bit as well. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast, and I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent, supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. So Chelsea, I'm so excited to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. This will be a fun topic for us to dive into. But before we dive into that, why don't you give us a background on you and who you are and how you got to doing what you do today? <laughs> okay. Fun condensed version. I was in education for about 16 years. My undergrad is in child development. I did school leadership and school design. COVID happened. I actually got on LinkedIn as a joke. I told my boss at the time, I guess I'm going to lose my job. So I should probably get on LinkedIn because that's what people do. And I was joking. <laughs> um, no it ended up being my favorite place in the world where my entire business actually has been built and my friendships. And actually, I would argue what led me to this place that I've been. It's been about three years that I've been hanging out on LinkedIn. So I am a LinkedIn nerd and I'm okay with it. And so now what I do is I'm in grad school, which is the problem with being ADHD and autistic is one day you're like, I'm bored. I should add something else to my thing. So you apply for grad school thinking that'd be fun. But then they message you back and they're like, not only are you accepted, we want to give you a full ride. And so then you send that to your partner and you're like, what do I do with this? And your partners, you say yes. And then here we are. So I'm in grad school. I designed my thesis, which will hopefully be done in April. And, and then what I do is I do some things. I'm trying to land in the space between creativity and neurodiversity. So we're like unmasking, not neurodivergency, excuse me. So like we're unmasking meets creativity. What does that look like? So like marketing to autistic and neurodivergent humans and also how autistic and neurodivergent humans can market themselves as creators, employees, and whatever. And then as far as me personally, I'm autistic, but I was what they call late diagnosed. I was 33 times, not real, 34, 34 when I got <laughs> diagnosed. And that was like, okay, cool. Both of my daughters are also autistic, which we learned that about a year ago. So about a year ago, it was like, ta-da, everybody's autistic. And then, yeah, so now here we are trying to figure out that welcome. That's my story. Yeah, awesome. And how old are your daughters? My oldest will be 14 on Wednesday. And then my youngest is just turned 12. So okay. they are old. I'm curious because I've talked about this on the podcast that 
sometimes a child gets diagnosed and then it's, oh, let me look into this more. What was the sequencing in terms of the identification process for each of you? The sequencing was similar to most, but a little bit different, right? So my youngest, I knew that she needed something different right out of the gate because I ran an early education center when they were in early education. So I was able to watch and see. And then I actually developed a kindergarten and a first grade for Alea because I knew she needed to stay. I knew she needed something else, but I didn't know what it was. And that was, I had a very limited understanding of autism, right? If you think about what's taught in education to educators is mm-hmm. the five, which is very far behind. So I didn't really know what was missing and what she needed as what was missing and to clarify it, not from her, but for her. Um, right. And yeah, so I, that went on for a couple of years of just trying to figure out what she needed. We found out she was dyslexic. We found out she was ADHD. She went to some really lovely private schools that I was able to work at and she would go and they would test it and it was great. COVID happened, all of that. But she was actually the first one to be diagnosed and she had a full neuropsychological screening in first grade where they did ADHD and I'm sorry, ADHD and dyslexia. And then she went and did it again in fifth, I want to say fifth grade. And that was where they were finding markers of autism. And yeah, so then I started researching, right? Because then special interest and I'm like, Ooh, autism, read everything. I read everything. And then I started going, huh? That's interesting. So then I called that same doctor, was talking with her. She's really lovely. She's a professor at Texas State. And then she does diagnostic work, which I love that she's doing both of those things. And so I fed her all these things like, this is what I think, this is what I feel and whatever. And so I did the assessment. And when she called me, her statement was actually, I have good news. You're autistic. And it was just because I was, I don't want to claim that I'm this, but I really feel that I'm this. And by the way, I feel self-diagnosis is completely valid, right? But I was really stuck. So I got my diagnosis and then I sent my 13-year-old. I was like, I don't know, man. So that was was the order. But yeah, it's very typical that someone in the family goes and someone else and then here we all are. Absolutely. And I feel like especially we're similar age. So growing up in our day and age, like how it was diagnosed back then is very different than how it is now. But especially for females, the symptomology can look so much different in terms of gender. And knowing what we know now and looking back, ah, that, yes, that makes sense. But I, I have this conversation sometimes of, I'm not sure there would have been a value of like me as a child being diagnosed as autistic because of what we knew and the structures we had. But really, I don't, I almost would argue that it could have been more of a hindrance than a value at that point. Um, So, but when I did get out my Barbies to give to my younger daughter, I had a bucket that my mom had kept and I was like, okay, cool. So I give them to my younger daughter. She gets them out. They all have markings on their feet. And she was like, what is this? And I said, I don't know. So I start looking at it and they were categorized. So all of the Barbies have A1, A2, A B1. So they was A family and then the numbers of the people in the family and then the B oh my family, the number of the people. And I'm looking at that going, ah, yes, that seems right. <laughs> and yeah. she loved it. This is perfect. <laughs> my categorization system, so. Thanks, mom. Your brain thinks like mine does. So this is so perfect. I know who belongs. I know. It was great. Oh, I love that. That's so awesome. But I also agree, you know, thinking about where the state of supports were, you know, when we grew up versus what we're seeing them become now, they're, they're very different. And probably the recommendation would have been, I mean, it, I, but I can't even imagine this, but my guess would be the recommendation would be like, okay, well, you need to do ABA, but then, you know, which we talk about very openly here, you know, and what yeah. the autistic perspective is and all of that. And, but it's just interesting to think about like, yeah, that wouldn't have been a good fit whatsoever. They would have done a pullout program. Yeah. Like that, I would, yeah. I guess at, at the very least, they would have pulled them out for sped and then. I don't know. It wouldn't have been great. Yeah. Yeah. This all makes sense. And I think, thank you for giving us that background. Where do we start? Because I feel like I have so many questions. I'd be curious to talk a little bit. 
as a former educator, hearing your perspective on different ways that parents can think about having their child supported at school, what they can advocate for. Obviously, we do have episodes on IEPs, that type of thing. But I think you really being in the systems would be awesome to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. Oh, I have so many thoughts on this. Where do I know the place to start? Okay, I'll start here. So my youngest has an IEP. She has all of those things for ADHD and dyslexia. Because those are the pieces that really, honestly, the school can support in. (laughs) So the school can provide tangible supports in an IEP for dyslexia and sometimes for ADHD. But so we went that direction. So this year she went into middle school and I really have no intention of putting autism on her into her diagnosis or in her IEP. And I was feeling that way, but sometimes I'll tell a teacher hey, by the way, she's autistic, which made you might see some of these things. But other than that, she will engage with you normally, quote unquote. You can see my air quotes, normally. Yeah. <laughs> and so this year I did, I was at the open house, went to the, the dyslexia interventionist. So she's a SPED teacher and said, hey, by the way, you're spending a lot of time with the I just want to let you know that she is autistic. So you might see some of these things. And her response was, but she makes eye contact and she's not nonverbal, which is so cliche on for us on this side, right? But it's also a stark reminder that it's not cliche. <laughs> it's not. For us who have this conversation all the time, we're like, ha ha, that's funny. But it's not cliche. It is absolutely the understanding that so many people have. And we're talking a sped teacher. This person is specifically educated for special education, which in the public school system would be autism. And I was just like, my partner was there and he taps my arm and he's, let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. But so all that being said, I did follow up with the principal. Not that sounds like a lot, but he's a very engaged principal. It's a pretty, so I followed up with him and said, here's what we experienced. Here's what we know. And by the way, you are required, the te- your teachers are required to have trauma-informed CEUs and CEUs around SPED development. And I am a certified, I can do that. So I'd love to be able to engage with your teachers and talk a little bit more about these things. And then I can give them CEU. CEUs, but in the meantime, this is the conversation that needs to be had. So I did follow up there, but I would argue the biggest value that you can bring when supporting your kiddos in school is the way that your kids perceive autism, especially the way that your kids perceive their autism and however you use that, if you use person first or identity first. But it's very important because, and I posted about this a while ago, if you had a blank slate, we're talking, you have an 11 year old who is autistic, but has never heard of autism, never seen stereotypical representations, never been introduced to some puzzle piece somewhere. None of that exists, okay? You have a clean slate and you're going to tell them you are autistic. This is what that means. What would you say? And that is the question that I lead parents in asking, right? You're, I want you to create a slate for that child. What is autism to you? Because they're not any different than they were the day before their diagnosis. Now they just have data right? They have data points. I love data points. But for my girls, we are very open, obviously, about what autism is and is not and what it could be and what we know, what we don't know. It's a conversation. And I know there's often a lot of debate, if you will, around the value of labels as being the saying or diagnosis. Talking about autism, it doesn't change who you are, so we don't need to talk about it. Or we really do talk about it. And I think there's a middle ground all in the perception of it. Autism is a conversation that we have. It's built into our life. We make jokes about it. I sent my daughter a meme this morning that was about how autistic humans are essentially cats. (laughs) And like things like that. But it's also a very open conversation because we were somewhere and we saw an autistic human who had very high support needs compared to what we have. And... They were asking questions. What is that autism? How do they experience autism is the language that we use. So I could go on so much more, but to wrap that up, it really is, what is your child's perspective of their autism? 
And then how does that impact the way that they experience autism in the world? And I would argue that is the most important thing you can do to support your kiddo in school is how they perceive who they are and what they quote unquote have. Yeah. I love that. And yeah, I get asked a lot when I'm doing diagnoses of, do we tell our kid? Do we yeah. not? And I'm very strongly in the the ground of yes, because in large part of listening to autistic adults, a lot, even pre-diagnosis or pre-identification of this is autism, th- they report that there is this difference that they experience. Oh, and yeah. I think validating it, normalizing it, allowing emotions to be processed around that is so essential. And I think that ultimately, obviously, as a clinical psychologist, I diagnose autism all the time. So I do find the value in the quote unquote label, but it's more for, I talk about a lot, accessing services, if those are needed, it can help to understand how your child's brain works or for them to understand how their brain works as well. And I also think that at the end of the day, one of the toughest parts, and I'd love for you to comment on this next because I don't have the lived experience, is growing up in such a neurotypical world. That is what makes autism the hardest experience is this non-acceptance and these neurotypical benchmarks that we're all living up to. And this is true for other neurodivergence as well. But I'd love for you to comment on that from your experience. Yeah. I mean, I say it gives you a, and I'm going to use all the nerdy terms because this is just what I do. I'm doing yeah. research points. Please. I live inside of computers and this is just what I do. So I would say, and this is how I talk about it a lot with some of my, because lay diagnosed autistic humans have the same conversation. Um, do I need a diagnosis? If I get a diagnosis, does that provide value? Do I use that as a part of who I am or is it relevant? I think this is a very important conversation for families, but it's a conversation for the autistic and arguably the neurodivergent community in whole. But I think it comes down to, it gives you a search term, right? So as you're saying, I ate by myself outside of the library all through high school, but I didn't know why. I just didn't want to go in the cafeteria and the outside of the library, there were books there and nobody else was there. And it seemed fine. I was so bored in high school that the first six weeks of my 10th grade year, I called my mom every day crying, begging her to take me out and just buy homeschool curriculum and let me do it on my own. Because this was exhausting. Why do we have seven minutes between classes? What do we need seven minutes for? If you combine all of those, that's 20 minutes. Like it didn't, make sense the way that school functioned. It was slow. I didn't like it, whatever. I was successful, right? I was quote unquote successful. I had good grades. I was in honors. I played volleyball, but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I didn't know why. And so my mom did pull me out, God bless her, and bought me the remainder of high school school curriculum and just said here. So in the next year and a half, I just did all of it. And then I was done and I was so happy. But one thing I really remember saying was, I just want time. I just want to be able to sit and stare at the wall. That's what I was. That was my expression of, I don't know what's going on. I'm an autistic burnout, but I didn't know that. And so all I could say was, I just want to be able to sit and stare at the wall. And so as far as that goes for what telling kids or not telling kids or those types of things is you are right. There is, we are experiencing differences in way more ways than we have the ability to communicate and or the ability to make sense of for ourselves. So I would argue that withholding that information, and I don't say this in a condescending way because I did that when my first, when my youngest was diagnosed with ADHD, I was like, I'm not going to tell her because that'll take away from her experience. So I've been on both sides. But I would say that if you're keeping that secret, from that human, I would claim it's a secret why. And what kind of internalized biases or concerns do you have about that term being given to your child and then your child interpreting it? Because in the data point, sometimes it's access. And so it really comes, I think it's a bigger question of, would you hide it if it was, I don't know, what's something, what's something good I say good compared to so making it into the quote unquote gifted program. Would you hide 
what that was and just send them to the program without telling them what it was? Or would you tell them because that's quote unquote good? So if you're not telling them about their diagnosis, are you labeling that quote unquote bad? And so I think it's really an internal conversation about what that word means to you and to them. But it really does give us clean slate. Like we get to build what autism is and is not because autistic humans have voices now more than we ever had in the past. So if we keep not claiming as quote unquote claiming our autism, then we just keep allowing holistic humans, and I don't mean this negatively, but allowing holistic humans to run the autism conversation. And I don't know, I'm going to stop on my soapbox. But yeah, that's my statement there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I absolutely love that. And one of the things that triggered for me there just listening to is I do talk about sometimes parents they're not ready to tell right away because they yeah. need to wrap their own brain around it and do their processing. And that's, that is so valid. But I also love this comparison. And I just threw, I don't know why giftedness popped into my brain, yeah. but it's actually fascinating to think about giftedness because in, in many ways, giftedness is a form of neurodivergence. Oh, yeah. we've, we've just considered it a good and again, right. air quoting too, mm-hmm. we're using this very loosely, a good form of neurodivergence, right. which is so fascinating to think about. Yeah. yeah. I'm obsessed with language, strategic communication, like all of those things. And so that's the really fascinating bit is what's the tie that word has or does not have. And internally, I think that's the first question. So actually, speaking of language, because I think sometimes parents don't know, can we just do, and I actually have never done this on the podcast, I just use terms for the most part, but can we do some quick definitions? Like holistic is not a word that I will say, even though I know what it is, commonly used. So can we break those, some of these terms down real quick? Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Sure. Allistic would just mean a non-autistic person. Yeah, so that's holistic. And I use it in research because it is the research term. But yeah, I think, I, did I use that? <laughs> you did. You did. Yeah. No, and I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about, which we're going to get to in a second, because it very much relates to research and in, in regard to how autistic individuals, neurodivergent individuals largely have much more of a voice now. And that's important because for yeah. so long, all holistic humans have driven that right. conversation, yeah, which yeah. in research is very much. Oh my gosh, yes. What about in terms of of, I'm curious for you and your perspective and the research you've done, neurodiversity versus neurodivergence versus neurodivergent. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. So I go back and forth so much. I use the term, I used the term neurodiversity. Okay. Here, let me start over. <laughs> In my server, I have a Discord server where there's a whole bunch of us late, late diagnosed people. We use the statement neurocolorful and that feels expressive. Like that feels safe. And and as a precursor to all of this, everybody uses different language for themselves. And that is absolutely okay because whatever language feels safe for you is what's important, but it's also important to ask others what feels safe for them. But there are even people in my community that I'm close with that are like, neurocolorful doesn't do it for me. I'm like, that's perfect. Do something else. But when I'm doing research, obviously, or when I'm posting, I use the terms neurodiversity, neurodivergent, because people understand them generally, in a general sense. For a while, I got frustrated with using the term neurodiversity because of some things that were happening with the kind of quote-unquote originator of the movement and research in neurodiversity who was making some anti-trans statements and those types of things. So I was like, I don't know. But then for me, again, language is not owned by humans. So what does that look like as the evolution? But So I use neurodiversity 
neurodivergence and neurodivergent a lot in communication because people understand it. But neurodivergent would, I also, it, it would be a divergence from neurotypical and neurodivergent. Diver, <laughs> now I've got me all confused. Neurodivergent. So I mostly talk to, relate to, work with autistic humans. But neurodiversity is an umbrella term for so many other neurodivergencies. And so I go back and forth. I don't want to always just say autistic or AUDHD because I had someone come in my server and say, hey, I'm not autistic. I am fill in the blank. Can I still, do I still belong here? And that was the statement that they used. And I was like, oof, because sense of belonging, we're talking very bottom level. So I try to use the term neurodiversity or neurodivergency in a way that other as a symbol to a call, like a bat signal to other people who are experiencing those things to maybe feel more comfortable and engaging in that conversation, even if they're not quote unquote formally autistic or formally diagnosed or any of those things. I try to use them as a welcoming term. Anybody that's neurodivergent from whatever the neurotypical is. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's fascinating being on my side of things, being a clinician of trying to keep up with some of the language. Right, yeah. Um, I will say I actually had an experience where, and I still see this all the time. And I I did some research myself and ultimately landed on a, what I think is right, but it probably will change. Oh, yeah. But in terms of care, I largely work with autistic individuals, well, autistic children. And this podcast is for parents of autistic children. But in terms of talking about care, at first I was saying neurodiversity affirming care. And so it's like that, that is completely wrong. You don't even know what you're talking about. So now a lot of times I say neurodivergent affirming care, but I do think sometimes even with good intention, intentions, if someone isn't autistic or neurodivergent themselves are trying to keep up, like it can be hard. It can be confusing. And there's so many different terms, but I, I, internally, I mean, even internally for the autistic. Yeah, like, that's true. Different and different perspectives, different wants of how you're referred to think identity first versus person first. Like it's very individualized, personalized. And I did, when I was dying, when my daughter was diagnosed, the formal sheet said high, high support needs or low, low support needs. I can't remember. And I did follow up and say, can we change this terminology on her diagnosis? And she did. And she was like, oh, I didn't even know that. And this term works and whatever. And that's not always available, but it is hard to keep up with language changes and it will keep shifting and changing. And so I think we just have to be nice to each other. (laughs) We have some grace for what other people know or don't know or think or don't think. Absolutely. And I love that point you said about asking the clinician, are you open to changing this? And I will say from my end, it's Absolutely. Like, for example, I don't usually put levels of from the DSM in the report because mm-hmm. I think they're pretty not, they're pretty useless. They're not very helpful. And I find them honestly more confusing, things like that. But I love being able to have conversations like this and continue to learn. And sometimes too, it's the opposite of why are you calling my child autistic? And it's, I largely use identity first language now. I didn't a couple of years ago because the way that I was trained was person first language, but it's evolving and shifting. And I love being able to have conversations and always want to, literally, I have a huge recommendation in my report of going to autistic individuals to learn about the lived experience because that is really important. I can talk about it from a clinical lens. Um, Chelsea, you probably don't know this, but I also can talk about it um, in terms of the sibling experience. My brother was diagnosed um, when he was 23 months of age, but I can't talk about it from that firsthand experience. So, And those experiences are valuable too. I often see this like being put against you. Like it's allistic versus autistic or, and that's not the case. And I, I think to clarify, when we talk about bringing more autistic voices because it's always been driven by holistic people does not mean holistic people are not valuable in the research. It means we also need these other pieces. And it's not an against, like when people join my Discord Discord server, part of the you know rules or whatever say, this is not an holistic bashing. We ain't neurotypicals. We are this kind of thing because that exists. Yeah, it does. That just, it doesn't help. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. So I agree. And the more that we can come together to help this mission of understanding neurodivergence, I think is going to be so important. And at the end of the day, like someone like myself, I am a frontline person. I am one of the people that are giving this diagnosis. And so I love being able to work collaboratively. So let's go into the research piece. So I don't even know what question, to be honest, ask you where to begin because this is so in-depth and I know we've already been talking for a while, but yeah, largely context too. I don't remember if I said this in um, our LinkedIn messages. I was in academia until literally a little over a year ago and I love to start my practice. So very immersed, but largely we aren't hearing about neurodiversity, neurodivergence. We are, a lot of it is being driven by holistic individuals. A lot of it is also being driven by what's getting funded by like the National Institutes of Health. So I'd be curious of like where so far you've seen some shifts come into play. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and also a lot of the autistic research is, is done with children. Yes. Um, and for parents, there is a lot of autistic research for carers of autistic people, which is not bad, but it is, where is the research for the person experiencing autism? And that's a, a huge gap. So being in strategic communication and with my background in early education, child development, and my hopeful PhD in curriculum design, my thought, my statement, my belief, the reason I'm doing this thing is that psychological safety can be created in some way in mass communication. And how do we create this space for that? I know that's a huge statement, but that is, I think it can be because we know it, the opposite is true. So if the opposite is true, how can we also create spaces for this? So all that to say, when I first started digging into it, I just couldn't find, I couldn't find anything. The, the university that I'm at even has a, a lab that's is specifically for autism and it's a big deal. And there's a professor there who's lovely and does all this work. And I reached out to her and said, Hey, here's the work that I'm doing. I'd love, would you be able to, you know, talk with me more about your ideas of literature, where to start? And she was like, yeah, this is outside of my knowledge base. I actually don't feel like I have anything that I can give to support here. And so that was my first step was actually Googling professors who worked in autism, neurodiversity, or whatever, that could give me some starting points. I needed lit for my lit review. Hey. <laughs> I didn't find anything. I needed like a seminal piece and there just wasn't really those things. And so the, I had probably 10 conversations with professors, university departments that serve autistic humans specifically across the nation. And the biggest statement that I heard in response was, I can't actually think of a of something that would go really well here. Like you might be able to take these things and tie them together in a weird way and use that, but I can't actually think of this is a good place to start or here's some suggested literature. And that was like, oh boy, that was a bigger thing. And the thing that I heard from these researchers, some of them are autistic, some of them are holistic, whereas I just don't think that conversation exists. I just don't think this is really happening and that was, I knew it was rare and I, but I, once I dug into, dug onto it, dug into it, I was like, oh boy, what am, what am I, where do I even start? So yeah, there was a huge piece missing in that. Yeah. And I think being in academia, this wasn't something I was hearing about right at the end. We definitely started talking about neurodiversity. I was at the university of Pittsburgh because they were, I shouldn't say because, but there was an interest, but also the University of Pittsburgh ended up getting a, what's called an autism center of excellence for, to focus on autistic adults. And so this was a big focus there. So I started hearing about it, but I think since I've left academia, I also didn't have the bandwidth in academia to go and learn about all of this and neurodivergence and really listening as much in theory I should but just the way the workload was. But once I left, it is a culture. Exactly. And that's not a valued piece of work. And so you have to try to squeeze it in these like nooks and crannies. But it wasn't until I left, honestly. And then I just started scrolling social media. That's how I've learned 
so, so much is through social media, not through going to the research literature and all of it. And yeah. You said the research literature is, is done by what's funded. And right. what's funded is led by the largest groups that are speaking about autism, which are mostly not autistic humans. We really have a, a larger problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get autistic run organizations that lead the autism conversation, funding for research is going to be a little wonky. So is that what you think needs to happen then is like basically we need to get more autistic individuals into these like positions or just starting new kind of like advocacy funding groups, things like that? Yeah. The thing we always say in grad school is the answer is it depends. Right. <laughs> largely, I would say that yes, because there are huge nonprofits, though thou shall not be named, that yeah. kind of lead the conversation around autism that kind of lead the government organizations that fund autism, all of those types of things, they're not autistic run. Right. And so their funding pieces have different interests than maybe the autistic community has. And I think that's a big piece that we're missing until we have autistic run, or at least more autistic people in the things, right. <laughs> lead the conversation government-wide, nonprofit-wide, higher education-wide, then we're going to have a gap around what's being funded and maybe what is most needed. Yeah, that makes sense. So based on your perspective and knowledge of being more in this academia space, where are you starting to see some things related to neurodivergence, neurodiversity type focus? Where's that starting to pop up in research, would you say? It's challenging. Like I was talking about earlier where uh, keywords, right? You got to find the right keywords. And that's true for research. If you're going into a library, you have to build your query on the keyword. <laughs> so yeah. I have spent so much time with my professors, my chair, the librarian, other autistic professors going, what are the keywords that we need to build this query to really find the pieces? And that is a huge struggle because they're not using the language that we would use. They're not using autism in the way that we would use it. They're using it in the way the DSM-5 describes it, which is not actually what we're looking for. It becomes very challenging. And honestly, unfortunately, the biggest, one of the biggest search terms that I've found, because I am looking for how does a neurodivergent, specifically an autistic human, experience marketing and advertising and are they more likely to click an ad and be taken advantage of or high pressure sales than an holistic person that's my basis right so what i'm really looking for is the some conversations around consumer behavior of autistic humans or more likely to end up in a cult right we know that's true but we we don't have the research on it the closest thing i've really found are two things one, there's a whole lot of research on peer pressure, peer issues between autistic children. But in for adults, when I'm looking for neurodivergency and conversations for autistic adults around consumer behavior, the biggest word is victimization. You're mm. looking for, they're not using terms autistic and neurodivergent or disabled. They're saying who is most likely to be victimized by. And those are the articles where you're finding the markers that you're looking for, which I think is not... Uh, surprising, but not great. They're talking about autistic humans and other marginalized people in these articles, but they're not calling it out by that name. They're saying these are the types of humans and the characteristics that are more likely to be taken advantage of in marketing or consumer behavior and those sorts of things. And um, yeah, so the keyword is very challenging because the language is... Yeah. And I think like you said, it's largely being driven by the DSM and just the medical models conceptualization of autism, very deficits-based, says now we're trying to focus more on differences and, you know, that there, there are support needs, but there absolutely are strengths. And I will say, I'll say, I remember writing articles where it was so deficit-focused and when it's the way that I was trained, yeah. I've been in the field, I think, we at this to start somewhere. Right? Yeah. Like, conversation had to start somewhere. If you do any research in the history of the autism diagnosis, we are light years ahead of where we started. So I'll take it. I'll take yeah. it. 
And I am finding some conversations started, and I'll be doing this in my research, and it comes from Reddit, honestly. Reddit's a magical place too, right? Where people are publishing research and using language around autism, and then the autistic community is responding and saying, this, you did not, this is not correct. Do not use this language or whatever. And you're actually seeing a slow shift in the, the language being used in, in research papers because of the feedback that the autistic community is giving, like the mass feedback of nope. And even though I use, in my research, I'll use terms like DSM-5 because I have to describe autism because you have to do these things and you have to describe what you have. I have a paragraph that says, these are essentially, these are the statements that I'm using because this is the social construct that we live in. So I'm going to use these statements because that's what lives inside of this construct and allows the conversation to happen. However, my beliefs and what the language that I would use kind of thing is this. So you're seeing a lot of researchers setting the stage and saying, I'm going to use person-first language, but identity-first language is, a bit, is used in autistic communities as well. I'm going to use high, high functioning because that's the language that exists inside of this social construct and research. However, this is what the autistic community is saying. So you're starting to see that, which I really like. They're yeah. open. This is what I'm using, but please let me know how it works. And this is actually what the autistic community uses. And you're starting to see a very slow shift. So I'll be doing that in mine as well. Yeah. In some of the more recent papers I've published, we've done that too. I want to say we ended up actually using identity first language right? because yeah. and then putting actually, I'm pretty sure I'd have to go back. It was a while ago yeah, I wrote yeah. it and it just gets published. But I'm pretty sure we used identity first and then put a, a footnote that basically says explaining why we're using it because yeah. then we get the research community who's not up to date being like, right. you can't use that language. Yeah, like, I know. Blah. I think the footnotes always help. And it's a challenging balance to hold. Like, how do you honor the autistic community and what's changing and evolving? But you're really trying to speak to the the academic community and the researchers. So you right. have to use both because if you write something that's completely correct, I would argue, <laughs> as far as language, you're not going to be cited. Maybe you're less likely to be cited and less likely for that research to be built upon. So it's a a weird balance you have to hold. It is. And I actually face this too as a clinician with diag a diagnostic report. So I have a whole paragraph now I put in talking about neurodivergence and how I integrate strengths. And if a parent reads this, it might still feel pretty deficit-based. Yeah. And some of that is because I don't want another medical provider who doesn't understand neurodiversity picking this up and being like, what was this provider doing? They don't understand autism. All they're talking about are these strengths and maybe some support needs. And so it's this balance of like, how do I justify to the medical community that yes, this is autism and still honor that, that child and the family and also make it so the parent doesn't feel like everything is negative either. It's so really hard because yeah. it's still existing in the social construct of neurotypical and neurodivergent. And as long as we exist in that, there's going to be these types of variances. It's hard. Totally. Yeah. Are there any, I know you're still in the process of writing your thesis, but like any kind of sneak peeks that you can give or little things that you're learning even through the lit search along, along the way about your topic? Oh my gosh. Lit reviews. I could just live inside of lit reviews because it's pretty much an invitation to do like rabbit bunny trails or whatever they're called, right? It's an <laughs> to go into each article and then find those references and go into that article and then find oh those my references. God. And then I have 200 tabs open. I'm like, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> yeah, um, I think you love it more. I never loved it. Um, I love that you love it. <laughs> I, I just, oh, I love it so much. And actually before I go, there is a app that I found and I can't remember what it's called, but if I find it, I'll text you. Maybe you can put it in the footnotes. If there's yeah. any other researchers out there, there is an app that will read academic papers to you. You also have to choose, only read the introduction and the conclusion. I don't want the methods. That's not helpful for me. So you can get the, uh, right? I don't like, I don't really need that bit. I just need these pieces. The app will, you can check off which parts you want to read, what, what you want it to read to you. And then as it's talking, you can stop and cite and click that and click why you wanted to cite it. And then it'll pull data from the article and dump it into an export. And then you can use it in whatever. And it is 
Wow. So I would love that. Yeah. Cause oh, wow. I, love, I prefer to listen to things over reading yeah. them like audible. I much prefer audible. So yeah. that would be, oh, yeah. it was really lovely. There are other things that will read to you, but having something that'll like, you can uncheck the method section. Like that's different. That's specifically for this. And it's lovely. <clears throat> anyway, as far as sneak peeks, if you will, there, so I was raised in a high demand religion. And I use that term as a kind of like saying high functioning autistic human, right? I was essentially raised in a cult. I had a really hard time with it, but I was absolutely in it. Like I had rules, <laughs> I had expectations, I had clear boundaries, whether or not they were healthy. And I excelled, like I was really good at it. I also did not do well at the end and, and got out of it, et cetera. But that was honestly the push for a larger conversation because marketing and communication for to the autistic or neurodivergent community exists in way more ways than we bucket it, right? We're thinking like how Coke advertises their drink or how a movie is the trailer of a movie goes. But it is also how colleges communicate to prospective students. It is also how churches communicate to prospective community members or whatever. It is so many ways of how the community is communicated to. And there is a difference in the way that autistic people engage and hear information. And if we know that there's a difference, and I'm using no in the fact that like we know, but research doesn't show we know there's a difference, then I believe it is our responsibility as communicators, as marketers, as even like digital course sellers and whatever, to think about how we're saying the things that we're saying, especially if the car community is the neurodivergent and autistic community. And there's, there is a lot there of marketing tactics, sales tactics that are highly reviewed and researched and like top of the line tactics, quote unquote, I'm not even using that word negatively. That's the term that they use. Yeah. Are in my opinion, harmful to the neurodivergent and autistic community. So that's what I'm, that's really what I'm finding. If you look at here are the top marketing, strategic communication, PR, tactics to get a change in behavior, because that's what you're looking for is behavior change in marketing. It will completely contrast an autistic community, an autistic person's strengths and weaknesses, right? Like when you overlay those two, it's concerning. So that is, I don't know if that's a good sneak peek. It's all concerning. Yeah. I <laughs> think it's my mission. It's important to know, you know, that there is work being done in this area and incredible that you're taking this on. So thank you so, so much for that. And I'm excited as things keep evolving to see this get published and be able to read the findings. And I'll look. I'm in that place where I'm like, I don't know, why did I even do this? <laughs> no, trust me, I promise it does end up worth it. But when you're in the thick of it, it is like, what did I, I decide to do? Yeah. No, but I get to use my research on the daily, which I think is really helpful. Like I'm not doing research that's over here just to get my degree. Like I went backwards. I'm doing research because it's my daily thing and that supports it instead of the flip side. Because now I'm working with course creators and marketers and in creating neuroinclusive marketing structures. So that's, I like that. That I think is what keeps me going. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So before we wrap up the episode, what we will do, we'll put links in the show notes, but where can people connect with you and keep this conversation going if they're interested? I mean, yeah. LinkedIn is my favorite place. If you're on LinkedIn, absolutely do that. It's not as dirty as you think it is, but I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. Not as much, but I'm there and it's at Chelsea.empowers. We can put the link, but yeah, that's the, those are the places that I hang out the most. And then we have a discord community that is essentially it's not really for people who care for autistic people so it might not be super relevant but it is for autistic neurodivergent humans as a whole yeah which i'm sure there's a lot of neurodivergent humans yeah. listening to this right now yeah. just by numbers alone having an autistic child so i think if we can put that too that would be so yeah. awesome and i i have one closing statement that's super yes, valuable to me okay research has shown and i will find the article and, and share it so we can put it in the show notes research has shown 
that one supportive adult can decrease a, a suicidal ideation or a suicide rate by 40%. 40%. That's a huge number, especially when we know that an autistic child is 28 times more likely to have suicidal ideation or commit suicide. 28 times more likely. I don't say that is it. Here's the terrifying thing. I say that as community is a suicide prevention tool. So like wherever you find it, hang out in it. Even if you don't talk, just listen and talk it and watch it and hang out in the background because you don't, you aren't the only one who experiences those things. And so I think community, in my opinion, and from my lived experience is a suicide prevention tool. Sounds drastic. That, that is, I would just, that's very important to me. So if yeah. people here. Absolutely. And as parents listening to this, what this tells you is really learning all of these strategies to be supportive. I think the mere fact that they're listening to this podcast, we talk about diversity. I try to have like guests on all the time is really such a huge indicator. But I, and I talk about that a lot, like not specifically even in terms of suicide, but just in terms of long-term outcomes. One of the best things you can do is just be a very supportive parent, help your child learn how to navigate the world. And validation changes. I use the term suicide prevention because the number two way that autistic adults die is by suicide. So I use that in that even suicide prevention can be using someone's pronouns or validating someone's experience. So it is more than calling a crisis line, but it's just, it's, it's just so valuable and it's easier, I think, and we think it is to provide validation. Like I have a daily um, text club that sends out validating statements. That's it. You just get a validating statement every day. It's just like one sentence because validation changes because it's the opposite of gaslighting. I mean, yep. it changes everything. I'm gonna get off my soapbox, I'm done. I love it. No, thank you. That's the perfect <laughs> soapbox to end this. And Kelsey, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, it was lovely. It was lovely. Yeah. I loved it too. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. I will see you back here next time. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here, and I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye, y'all.